Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by David Gindler, the head of Milbank's Intellectual Property Litigation and Licensing Group based in Los Angeles. What I do think is that technology is accelerating development and advancements in ways that we haven't previously seen. Let's get to it. The urgent, coordinated international effort to fight COVID-19 has led in record time to the development and wide deployment of not one, but two vaccines based on innovative messenger RNA technology. Challenges remain in scaling up production and distribution of these and other vaccines worldwide. Looking beyond that, though, mRNA technology opens up vast new possibilities for medical breakthroughs against cancer and other diseases, expanding on early biotech inventions and know-how. This IP opens up a world of possibilities for new diagnostic tools, therapies, and vaccines in the future. It also says a lot about the nature of collaboration across borders, and between government, academic research labs, and private companies. David, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. It's my pleasure. So you've been doing a lot of work for years with intellectual property in the pharmaceutical area, looking especially at biologics and biosimilars and some of the more cutting-edge drug treatments that are around One of the things that's interesting about the new vaccines, at least two of them are based on mRNA technology, as opposed to the J&J kind of viral vector vaccine. What makes mRNA special, and how did we get to these vaccines so quickly when no one really thought we could? Well, we had an enormous mobilization of research among really the best and the brightest. And in some ways, you know, the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, really arose out of work at the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institutes of Health, where a woman named Kizzy Corbett was leading the work on trying to figure out what's the sequence of this virus, and then what can we do with that? And she figured out that it was the spike protein that really is gonna be the way to harness the use of of a vaccine to try to, to develop immunity. And her idea was to use mRNA, So mRNA basically is just the code for part of the spike protein. And her idea was you take the mRNA and you put it into this little nanoparticle and then you inject it into a person. The nanoparticle takes the mRNA to a cell. Your cell then looks at the mRNA and says, well, I know what to do with mRNA. You simply just make the protein. And your bloodstream says, we're going to develop antibodies. But those antibodies, they recognize the spike protein on the coronavirus. And so now you have antibodies to the coronavirus made by your body without ever actually exposing you to the virus itself. It's really quite remarkable. It really is. So there's a lot of different technological building blocks for that, of course, right? You've got to have the messenger RNA technology. You've got to have this receptor and technology, the delivery technology. You mentioned you know, the lipo nanoparticles that are used for that. These are very complex layers of technology. You have to get them to all to work together. How did the uh, companies that came up with these first mRNA vaccines like Moderna and uh, BioNTech and Pfizer do that so quickly? So part of it was that the mRNA technology, this wasn't invented last Thursday. People have been thinking about vaccines for a long time with mRNA, and people have been thinking about delivering vaccines with mRNA technology, but using nanoparticles. 
So it wasn't as if everybody came together in March of 2020 and said, well, could this work? This had been studied for years, but now we had an opportunity to sort of bring all this work together and have just this explosion of focus on solving one very critical problem. And so when you have this reservoir of work that had been done for years and then a singular problem brought to the moment, that's when you had really remarkable work done both at Pfizer and at Moderna. So there's this sort of a network of collaboration I can just hear from what you're saying that's leading to this, right? We have NIH, we have government scientists and government funds that are collaborating with university researchers, biotech startups, big pharma. They're all collaborating together. How are these relationships typically formed? Pharmaceutical partnerships are, I would say, the norm rather than the exception. Companies get together all the time because they each bring to the table certain levels of expertise. The vaccines are a perfect example. A company like Moderna may have expertise in the mRNA technology, but not have the expertise in the nanoparticles. How do you put the mRNA into a nanoparticle and then have it delivered? But there are companies that focus on that technology the nanoparticle technology. And there are many, many uses for these nanoparticles, vaccines being one of them. And so these companies partner together, and this partnership has been really, truly extraordinary, whether it's at the Pfizer level or at the Moderna level. And it was those partnerships that really enabled just this remarkable outcome. It really was just a scientific triumph that I think no one expected would be as remarkable as it is. And do you think that the development of mRNA vaccines, basically this proof of concept, will open the door to use of mRNA more speedily in other areas, whether it's therapeutics? I'm sure of it. Once you've now established that we can do this, we can do it quickly. We can do it efficaciously. We can do it safely. I think people are going to be much more bold and ambitious about looking for uh, other applications for mRNA technology other problems of vaccines that we don't have that maybe we can think, well, we could solve that problem too. People will now be thinking about what's the next thing that could happen and how do we now address it maybe before it gets here. People are thinking about this isn't the last global pandemic we're going to have. It's just not. So let's think ahead for the next one. What might that look like? How can we be prepared? How is the messenger RNA and all the mRNA drugs that are you know, under development today different? And are they safer or are they just using a different mechanism to get the body to do the right thing? It's just different. So the biologics you see today, that they all have a very, very sort of common mechanism. And their, their common mechanism is you're creating a cell line which has a piece of foreign DNA in it that the cell thinks is part of my DNA. And what DNA does is it makes proteins. You can make artificial proteins like these special antibodies, or you can make human proteins. Examples of human proteins are insulin, human growth hormone. And so that technology is all very much the same. For mRNA, that you're using to a very specific purpose. You actually want to just have the cell produce a transcript of the mRNA for a particular purpose. The difference really is this. The vaccine itself is not a treatment. 
right? So your vaccine is not a drug which your body is metabolizing in some way, doesn't work like the biologics, like these antibody products, which are being introduced in order to help to cure disease. What this vaccine is doing is it basically just having your cell produce something which is essentially benign to your body. The little spike proteins that, you're, that are being produced, they're benign, but your body says you shouldn't be here. And so your body makes antibodies to it. So it's a really sort of different approach in terms of what's being done. One, the vaccine is basically provoking your body to create an immune response to something which is otherwise benign, whereas the biologics are actually an infusion of an antibody, which itself is a cure. An example would be something like Perceptin. Some women have what are called HER2-positive breast cancer which means that their cancer is spread because they overexpress a hormone called HER2. And so Perceptin works by basically shutting down the overproduction of HER2, which was a game changer for women who had HER2 positive breast cancer. So this is an antibody. It's not attacking cancer, but what it's doing is it's attacking the hormone, which is overexpressed in certain women who have a kind of cancer. That's one of the examples of a drug which was just fundamentally changed the treatment of certain kinds of breast cancer. You know, another example is a drug called Rituxan, also a Genentech product. Rituxan is basically a B cell killer. Well, as it turns out, that can be a very good thing for certain kinds of diseases. So an example is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that was like in most cases, a death sentence before Rituxan. And now for many, many people, it is a completely manageable disease because you're able to either wipe it out or keep it under control. Once Rituxan had been improved on Hodgkin's lymphoma, the people at Genentech thought, well, what else might crazy B-cell activity be causing? And they said, autoimmune diseases. And so I thought, well, what's a really bad autoimmune disease? Well, What's one of the worst ones? Rheumatoid arthritis. Very common, horrible. And so there were many drugs which were just not effective. And so they did a clinical trial on people who had failed everything else. And it was a game changer. There have been really remarkable changes. There's a reason that Humira is the world's best-selling drug, which is it's unbelievable. It treats so many different kinds of things. And while I understand the controversy around it, it is a remarkable innovation. So one of the challenges, of course, with these mRNA vaccines is distribution, right? And as well as manufacturing, but they have to be handled in a, in a certain special way. They have to be usually stored and transported at very cold temperatures, unlike some of the, you know, the viral vector vaccine from J&J or the more traditional inactivated virus vaccines we see coming out of China, for example. When you look at vaccinating the world's population, not just sophisticated, advanced market economies, are these vaccines amenable to that as well at scale? Or do we need to have this wide range of different types of vaccines in order to meet these kinds of pandemics, not just now, but in the future? Well, I think it's always going to be a good idea to have a wide range of approaches because you never really know. It was a very good thing that I think you had some companies taking the mRNA approach, some companies taking a more traditional viral vector approach, and some trying even different things. If everyone's trying the exact same thing, that wouldn't necessarily be a good idea. Now, one of the 
limitations of the mRNA technology is the temperatures at which they have to be stored. And that does create global distribution challenges. Maybe it will be less of a challenge as time passes, as we develop an infrastructure that can do it. You know, the Chinese government is vaccinating their population with a homegrown Chinese vaccine, which is still in clinical trials and which shows sort of wildly varying levels of efficacy. And if you ask them, why are you doing this before you really have all the data? And their response is, we've got like a billion people that we have to vaccinate. We don't have the luxury of being able to have vaccines stored at special temperatures. It just can't be done. We have a vaccine. We're not 100% sure exactly how efficacious it is, but we need to get this done and fast. So this will be a global challenge as time passes. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about the similarity between what used to happen where you would just test and test and test and test and test and be sure your product was absolutely the best it could be before it was allowed to be ruled out or before there was a market for it. And in the last 20 years, that's changed. We we see obviously here an emergency situation because of a pandemic on the drug side where there were clinical trials. There certainly was you know rigorous testing, but for emergency youth authorizations, it's not quite the same thing when you have to prove the safety and efficacy. If you look at, you know, cell phone technology, you're constantly getting a new, you know, operating system upgrade pushed to your device. We're kind of all becoming beta testers in our spare time while the bug fixes are constantly rolled out. Is technology moving faster than we can handle it? I don't think technology is moving faster than we can handle it. What I do think is that technology is accelerating development and advancements in ways that we haven't previously seen. Let me give you an example. If you were a woman who had breast cancer 20 years ago, your treatment probably would be very similar to what it was 20 years before that. We had made small, tiny strides in treating cancer, but not a lot. That has changed profoundly over the past 20 years, and even more profoundly over the past 10 years. We are now at a point where cancers, which were just basically deadly, we're now able to put them into remission and give people longer quality lives. This is an example of how technology is accelerating and accelerating on top of itself. One discovery leads to the next step, so that now, for the first time, we are seeing inroads into threatening diseases like cancer that we have just not seen for a long time. Is there a chance that we'll see more, especially in the biologic drug development area, more of a parallel to what we've seen, for example, in telecommunications, where a company may have a basic technology, not so much basic simple, it, it could be quite complicated, but it's a fundamental building block for other things that could be developed. So for example, in cell phone technology, we saw CDMA coming out of Qualcomm, which was the basis of licenses for all sorts of other developers of technological innovations and products that relied on that to have a uniform standard for cellular telephony around the world. Qualcomm made its money not just on equipment, but mainly on licenses. You can see the same thing, I suppose, happening with mRNA or, or other things where the licensing from that initial discovery could be even more important than just making every product yourself. Alan, that is exactly correct. And there are drug platforms, biologic platforms, which were fundamentally discovered decades ago, but without necessarily understanding all the things that could be done with them. 
Let me give you an example. Uh, an example is recombinant antibodies. This is where you basically trick a foreign cell. Sometimes the, a favorite cell is Chinese hamster ovary cells. They work really well. And you design an antibody which can be very effective at treating a serious disease. It might be cancer. It could be an autoimmune disease. And you have this cell make these antibodies, which are then very, very efficacious against diseases. But this platform technology, this way basically of tricking foreign cells to make antibodies or other proteins, that is a profound platform and it has served for decades. But there are other platforms that are being explored. Another platform is called small interfering RNAs. And there are companies that are exploring that as a potential platform for treating serious disease. So you're exactly right. Often you can find a particular way of creating proteins or drugs, in this case, biologics. These are drugs made of biological material, and then using that to treat all different kinds of diseases in ways that the inventors really never really anticipated when they first came up with the platform. Mm -hmm. So there's been talk, given the challenges of deploying COVID-19 vaccines around the world, especially in, in developing countries, uh, there's been talk of patent waivers. And it seems now with the latest actions at the end of May from the Global Health Summit with the Rome Declaration that came out of that between the WHO and the European Union and the G20, not to do that, that instead voluntary licensing, voluntary transfers of technology and know-how were going to be the, the way to go. Why were patent waivers not a solution to the challenge of distributing vaccines more quickly? So the question you have to ask yourself would be, are patent infringement lawsuits or the threat of patent infringement lawsuits inhibiting the global distribution? I think 100% of people ask that question would say no. Why? In fact, Moderna itself has made a pledge that they will not enforce any of the patent rights that they have against anybody during the pandemic. So Moderna is giving everybody just a free pass. But that's not the issue. You know, in places like India, there really aren't any patent rights to enforce there right now. So this isn't so much a problem of patent rights interfering with the global distribution or inhibiting pretty much anything. The problem is we're just not making enough vaccine for the global community. And that's the problem that we have to solve. Getting a waiver of patent rights, I suppose on a long-term basis, we need to think about ensuring that patent rights are not going to stand in the way of a life-saving vaccine. But that's not today's problem. So what is today's problem? Is it raw materials? Is it distribution handling? Is it manufacturing skill? It's know-how. It is really hard to do this. So biologics are probably the single most complex class of medications to be able to produce. This is not like making Lipitor, where you have a bunch of chemicals, you know you have a formula, you can put it together. It really is not rocket science. Making biologics, this is, this is rocket science, and it's not easy to do. It requires specialized skills. So even if you want to enable others to do this, you have to pass along the know-how, and you'd have to have the willingness of companies like Moderna and Pfizer to actually share their know-how. And there are significant issues about that, which include, well, should they be compensated if they're going to share their know-how for the vaccines that they have developed? 
But that really is the issue here. It's not the patent rights. It's the know-how. What about some of the raw materials which are necessary for some of these more cutting-edge vaccines? I don't think the raw materials are really going to be the issue as far as I can tell. There are lots of manufacturing facilities which have the capability of of scaling up this kind of production of biologics. You know, I can't say that at this sort of global level that raw materials isn't going to be an issue, but I haven't heard about shortages of that. But the idea of vaccinating a global community is something which it's a challenge that we have never faced. And it's one where we remarkably have vaccines that were developed in less than the course of a year that we now can distribute. So how do we get that done? How do we get done fairly and equitably? Let's look at the economic part of this too, because one of the reasons why biotech companies and startups especially can attract private equity, eventually perhaps go public and enter into public markets, why they can eventually, once they're successful, attract debt, is because they have control of their own intellectual property, because there's a moat, if you will, around some of that value that's been created, which is very expensive and very high risk and can take years. Do you see that changing in any one way or another over the next, say, 10, 20 years? I see it being regulated much more intensely. So I think that the large pharmaceutical companies, which have always said that patent rights are very important, prices they charge are very important for them to invest in future technologies. And that is absolutely true. But it's also absolutely true that drug prices are very, very high. And while we now have what I'll call a generic pathway, for biologics, which started as part of the Affordable Care Act, we're seeing a slower uptake for those generic versions of biologics than we would like to see. And we're not seeing the same kind of price decrease that we would maybe otherwise want to see when you do have competing what are called biosimilars on the market. So while I think the basic framework is going to continue to exist, and that framework has obviously resulted in remarkable progress in science and in medication to treat life-challenging diseases, I expect to see much greater government regulation in the United States. There is considerably more price control in the European Union and around the world than there is the United States. I predict that you will see that changing quite a lot, whether it's under a Democratic administration or a Republican. We heard that both under the Trump administration, and we're going to hear it now under the Biden administration. So if you compare that, for example, to the regulated monopolies one finds in the power sector, right, with the traditional vertically integrated utility, there is a guarantee, yes, you'll, 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 you'll be able to have customers. You'll be able to justify these very large capital-intensive investments because we're going to give you a regulated rate of return. But that rate of return, because it's regulated to give affordability to ratepayers, not just reliability to the system, it discourages innovation. It discourages things that are very risky, because obviously you're not getting return commensurate with that kind of risk. In drug innovation, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of chances that what you're doing may not work out. You'll have to go through you know 10 expensive trials to get to the one which is good. How do you balance that price control on the revenue side with the need to attract risk capital on the front end? There are a wide range of price control mechanisms that insurers and governments have to keep pharmaceutical companies and biotechnology companies within the realm of reason for what they charge. But you also have to recognize, as you pointed out, 
that the amount of investment that it takes to bring a new drug to market, we're talking about potentially a billion dollars. And it often doesn't work out. Often drugs will go through a phase two clinical trials and then you don't meet your endpoints. And then you're done. So it's very important to provide the incentives for innovation. That's why you see this outpouring of new medications from leading uh, international biopharmaceutical companies. So that profit motive is very, very important. We can't lose sight of that. But that doesn't mean that people get to charge whatever they want. There has to be some idea of a reasonable range of profit that can be extracted. And I think that's a role where insurers and the government need to be active. In some ways, when you look at the IP network of these overlapping licenses and joint ventures, uh, sub-licenses, these partnerships between startups, say biotech companies and big pharmaceutical companies and the crossover to university labs, we talked about that in a moment, you're really talking about a network of intellectual property, not one piece that one company owns that is sort of the key to the kingdom. It's absolutely true. and. You can look at the vaccines as maybe a little microcosm of that. The vaccines, there are multiple areas of IP that overlap. There'll be IP that deals with the fundamental underlying concepts of using mRNA as a vaccine. There's the technology we talked about regarding the nanoparticle. So it's usually not just the one thing which enables a product to get to market. And then they're all, then there's the sort of non-sexy stuff of it which is all the manufacturing processes that have to be optimized in order to make sure that you can produce a new biologic at scale. And that itself is a huge challenge and a challenge that biotechnology companies have, have really demonstrated enormous success at. Can you comment a bit on the difference between a traditional drug and the generic, this chemical copy, which can be made of it exactly compared to a biosimilar variant on a biologic drug, whether it's a therapeutic or vaccine, either way? Well, the way that I think about the world as a lawyer, there really are sort of two kinds of medications. We think of one kind as small molecules. These are things like Lipitor. They're made up basically of chemicals. There's a well-established generic pathway for those, and there actually are certain regulations about how close the generic has to be. And there's a meaningful range by which the generic can be qualified to be effective in the small molecule area. Biologics are very interesting and they're different. A biosimilar is supposed to have essentially no clinical difference. But what's very interesting about the biosimilars is that while the sequence, the genetic sequence of the biosimilar is the same as the originator biologic, the actual molecule will not be exactly the same. So why is that? It's because it's a biological material. It has a three-dimensional structure and it folds in a certain way. And so that's why just because the sequence for Herceptin, a cancer treatment developed by Genentech, is well-known, doesn't mean that your average pharmaceutical company can just replicate Herceptin. It's really hard to develop that molecule, and people have tried, and some companies have failed, even the best. Is there a difference in how the FDA approval, for example, if you, if you make a generic of an existing drug, you can benefit from the FDA's approval of the prior drug 
in a way that I suspect for biosimilars is much more challenging if you have to reprove the safety and effectiveness of the new material. And that's a great point because in the small molecule world, you can just simply free ride on the data from the originator. All you have to do is show I've made the same thing. That is not the case for biosimilars. They actually have to take their product and then they have to go through clinical trials. And they have to show that there is basically no clinical difference between their product and the originator biologic. But there's one really important difference between your typical generic small molecule and the biosimilars, which is there is no automatic substitution. So right now, if your doctor writes a script for Lipitor, your pharmacy can just substitute in automatically the generic. You can't do that for a biosimilar. There is a category of, I'll call it a generic version of a biologic called an interchangeable, which would have automatic substitutions, but the standard for interchangeable is very high. And as of now, there are no interchangeables on the market in the United States. How much of that is a matter of regulation and how much of that is also lumped into this question of what insurance companies will pay for? And the absence of a single national health plan in this country, we have, although we have a large one in the form of Medicare, but we also have you know, private insurance, which covers a large chunk of the population. And there are different policies and different views, whether it's with the prescription benefit managers or, or others in the chain of when you can substitute one drug for another. So right now in the United States, insurance companies do not have the ability to wield the power of requiring a doctor to prescribe an originator versus a biosimilar because none of them have interchangeable status. And that's one of the things which has really protected the price of the originator drug. The prices have gone down and they have gone down meaningfully, but not in the same way that you see when a generic small molecule comes on the market where the price basically plummets by over 90%. We're not seeing that. I think we're going to have to see clearer regulations about what it is that makes something an interchangeable and then giving biotechnology companies the confidence to actually seek interchangeable status. I think, and understandably so, all of the companies seeking to make biosimilars, they were looking at, at making essentially a biosimilar. It gets on the market, but it does not have interchangeable status. Now that we have some experience now, hopefully, we'll get some clearer regulation, and we'll have companies that will seek interchangeable status. That is when I think you're going to see much more significant changes in pricing. Let's pivot back to the law for a second. And for those of us who are non-IP lawyers like myself talking to you, it's a chance to get an insight into something different. Talk a bit about this interplay between the FDA regulation of pharmaceuticals, the healthcare kind of establishment, whether that's what we just talked about with insurance companies or whether it's CDC and the response to pandemics or things, and how those relate to patent law or IP generally and monopolies and antitrust. There is definitely a connection, and that's particularly true in the United States, the European Union, Japan. So here's an example. If you develop a new biologic, a new medication. In the United States, you get 12 years of exclusivity without any patent rights whatsoever. In the European Union, you get 10 years of exclusivity. 
because there is a regulatory framework which is itself meant to incentivize. Patent rights sit on top of that. Remember that a patent right is the right to exclude somebody else from doing something which you have invented. You can think of a patent basically as defining the meets and bounds of your invention. You get to exclude others for a period of years. So patents essentially sit on top of that regulatory framework and can provide five, six, seven more years. Keep in mind that the patents themselves, they often do not provide the full scope of protection because a patent right will apply for 20 years from the date of application. It takes quite a number of years, could be three, four, five years or longer for your patent to even emerge from the patent office. And then it takes quite a number of years for your drug to come onto the market. So the 20 years you might thought you would have from date of application often winds up being quite a lot less, but you still have rights which sit on top of the regulatory framework. Together, they provide mutually reinforcing incentives for companies to invest extraordinary amounts of money uh, on research which might or might not work out. And how about the antitrust piece? Antitrust, it's interesting. It has not reared its head in the, what I'll call the intersection of patents and biotechnology until very, very recently. And the poster child for this is a drug called Humira, which is produced by a company called AbbVie. And when AbbVie was getting into litigation with companies trying to make biosimilars of its product, it had a huge array of patents. It had like 40, 50, 60 patents that it was erecting. And this was called a patent thicket. And the biosimilar makers said, what is going on here? You can't possibly have this many patents which apply to a single product. Now, most of them eventually settled, but then individuals, class actions began to form and said, well, wait a minute, can you actually use a patent thicket to extend the protection on your product for way beyond anybody ever thought you would have? So this is an area where for many years, you didn't see much activity, but now you're seeing a lot of activity. The classic example of antitrust intersection really has been solved. And that was where you had an innovator essentially pay off a generic to not enter the market. And that is basically turned into a no-no now. Right. Because that's kind of a classic anti-competitive behavior where you agree with a potential competitor not to compete in order to extract higher prices from the market. But for a long time, it was widely practiced until the government stepped in and brought antitrust actions. And then uh, we now know that's something which really can't be done anymore. And, and some states, including California, have very strong regulations against that. Of course, it's also interesting to me to see how much of this is in flux. So, for example, you may have a researcher who has a government grant to study in her university lab, who then goes off and starts a company, and maybe that company is bought out by another company, or maybe she goes and works for a pharmaceutical company. We have this, this distinction, too, between the inventor and the innovator, as you know, was a word you just used, which is really the person that's going to be able to develop this at enough scale that you can go through those expensive clinical trials and, if it works, commercialize it. There are 
a lot of very powerful incentives actually for academics to look for ways to partner with the for-profit world. So one way is that when universities license technology from researchers, academics at the university, they share the proceeds with the researchers. And the sharing is quite substantial. It is typically in the range of not lower than 20% to as much of a third. That can be quite a remarkable return if a researcher actually comes up with something which winds up uh, being the foundation for a blockbuster. And there are a number of examples of that. So that's one way in which universities provide incentives to partner with the for-profit sphere. The government got involved quite a number of years ago with the Baidol Act, which essentially was meant to give universities an even greater incentive to commercialize their technologies. And the Baidol Act allows universities to apply for intellectual property rights, for patent rights, even when the government funds the universities. So why is that important? Well, it's important because if you're going to partner with a large for-profit pharmaceutical company, they're going to want to know that there's intellectual property that's going to stand behind the drug or the new therapy. And so that wound up also being a very significant game changer in creating partnerships between the academic world and the for-profit world. Are we going to see more collaboration, not just between the academic sector, the government sector, and the private sector, but also internationally? I mean, this is an internet, it has been for many, many years, one of the most international areas of both research and economic endeavor. And there are, of course, differences between nations as far as the protocols for testing safety and efficacy. There are differences perhaps in the ethics and the guidelines around testing or around what can you know, be used for research. How do you see that evolving? So I see it evolving in a very positive way, but the issues that you've just raised, I think mean that you're gonna see collaborations maybe more frequently among countries that have a very well-developed regulatory scheme for clinical trials and for how they provide protections for intellectual property and exclusivity for a period of time for new drugs. So an example, of course, is the Pfizer-BioNTech partnership, but that's a European-American partnership. I believe we'll continue to see that, but the regulatory framework and having a developed regulatory framework that exists in the countries where these companies exist, that will be, in my view, profoundly important to creating the atmosphere for these partnerships to to really blossom. The last question about the future. You've been on, as I said, the cutting edge of a lot of drug innovations, especially with biologics over the years. And we talked at the beginning of this about mRNA and some of the new, both vaccines and therapeutics that could come out of that. What new or promising technologies are on the horizon that we should be expecting, whether it's applications of existing technologies in novel ways or just completely new technologies? So that's a great question. I'll tell you one of the things that I've become most excited about is for a long time, we've had a kind of therapy called uh, recombinant antibodies, but they've all been pretty specific for treating a particular kind of cancer. So researchers began to ask themselves the question, so why is it that the human body doesn't do such a very good job of fending off cancer? Because the body does identify cancerous cells as being a foreign danger. And the reason is cancer is smart. And cancer has, over the years, figured out a way 
to deactivate your adaptive immune system so that it just turns off the antibody making mechanism. And so researchers have said, well, what if we could solve that problem? What if we could basically inhibit the process by which cancer impacts your adaptive immune system? What if we could actually unleash every person's adaptive immune system to create the antibodies that will attack cancer? That's not a curing one cancer, that's curing many cancers. There are now several therapies on the market which are extraordinary, which although approved for a particular kind of cancer, they are now being used to address cancers for which they were not initially approved because the principle is not a particular cancer specific. It is now the ability to unleash your body's own immune system to tackle cancer. And I think that's one of the most exciting developments that I have seen over the past six, seven years. Okay, so immuno-oncology is our number one. You know, we call it the cancer moonshot. David, to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, Adam. Thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.